Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you Hallelujah. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. Thank you because the entrance of your word breaks yokes, lifts burdens, introduces light, illuminates our path. We're grateful, Father, for what you're doing in our life and in our time, O oh God. We give you all the praise. Sweet Holy Spirit, take complete control. Um, breathe upon each word. Breathe upon us as we listen. Give us understanding and revelation of the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, uh, for the next few weeks, we will be talking out of the Word that God brought at our crossover service. And how many were blessed by our crossover service? How many were blessed by that? How many were blessed by um, Ayo's spoken Word? Yeah? Beautiful, beautiful. So we're going to be talking out of that. Um, the overall theme, of course, is lunch out. Yeah? Um, and today I'm going to be talking around something I call the ultimate agenda. Uh, and if you want a more, more catchy title, then let him fix the boat would, would suffice. Let him fix the boat. And just to create the right background, I'm going to read to you um, from two versions. Permit me, it's a lot, a, lot, a lot of reading, but let's just create the right background. Um, the, the scriptures out of Luke, the fifth chapter, verses 1 to 11. Read, I want to read two versions to you. Um, so it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, this is the New King James Version, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out, and that's where the theme comes, uh, the theme is taken from, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net, net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to the land, they forsook all and followed him. The Passion Translation would put it like this. On one occasion, Jesus was preaching to the crowds in the shore of Lake Galilee. There was a vast multitude of people pushing to get close to Jesus to hear the word of God. He noticed two fishing boats at the water's edge with the fishermen nearby rinsing their nets. Jesus climbed into the boat belonging to Simon Peter and asked him, let me use your boat. Push it off 
a short distance away from the shore so I can speak to the crowds. Jesus sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished, he said to Peter, Now row out to the deep water to cast your nets, and you will have a great catch. Master, Peter replied, We've just come back from fishing all night and didn't catch a thing. But if you insist, we'll go out again and let down our nets because of your word. When they pulled up their nets, they were shocked to to see a huge catch of fish, so much that their nets were ready to burst. They waved to their business partners in the other boat for help. They ended up completely filling both boats with fish until their boats began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this astonishing miracle, he knelt at Jesus' feet and begged him, Go away from me, Master, for I am a sinful man. Simon Peter, uh, Simon Peter and, and the other fishermen, including the fishing partners, Jacob and John, the sons of Zebedee, were awestruck over the miracle catch of fish. Jesus answered, Do not yield to your fear, Simon Peter. For from now on, you will catch men for salvation. After pulling their boats to the shore, they left everything behind and followed Jesus. Now, we're going to be talking about this for for, for quite a number of weeks, I, if I could hazard a guess, I reckon probably about four weeks or thereabouts. But we need to understand one thing, and that's the one thing I just want to drive home today, the foundation of this whole story. The whole thing revolved around heaven's agenda, God's plan and God's purpose, what I call the ultimate agenda, and everything that will come out of it as we unpack it, it's really from this place of God's ultimate agenda. And what was the agenda? The agenda was that Jesus wanted to preach the word. The whole story unfolds because Jesus wanted the people to hear the word. He was looking for a boat that he could use to preach the word, to bring the gospel to the people, to a people who he knew needed the good news. But for that to happen in those circumstances, he needed a boat. And I want you to understand that in a a metaphorical sense, That boat is your life and my life. He needs a boat, your life and my life, so that the gospel can be preached. And if the enemy understands that, which he certainly does, then he wants to make sure that that boat in inverted commas, which is your life and my life, cannot be used. He has to try and strike, a preemptive strike, to damage the boat so badly that the boat cannot be used. You can imagine if Jesus stepped into the boat and the boat was leaking because there were holes, the, the hull was, was, was destroyed, the the outboard motor wasn't working. There's no way, the, and if there was no outboard motor, the, 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 the oars by which he would row 
or the, the, the boat was just in a bad state. He would have no choice but to find another boat. Even, even though out of mercy and compassion, he would want that boat fixed. But because of the urgency of the mission, the people were there. They were pressing a crowd, wanting to hear. Tomorrow would be too late. He had to speak to them now. It was a now moment. He needed a boat that was working that would take him a little way from the shore so he could use the boat as a platform, a stage to preach the gospel. So the enemy tries to make sure that the boat is damaged. And how does he do that? He does that primarily by attacking your identity and my identity. And we heard in Ayo's spoken word how she explained that. That the aim is to destroy our identity so that we don't know who we are. So that we accept what others say we are. The negative things that others say we are. The, that the circumstances have labeled us. And when we do that, there are literally holes in the boat. The boat cannot be used. It's damaged because we've allowed him to rob us of our identity. And so for us to understand and obey the instruction to launch out, the boat has to be in working condition. The boat has to be fixed. A leaky and malfunctioning boat will hamper any attempt to launch out, to allow Jesus to use us and ultimately to in instruct us to launch out. And you know, the truth is that life circumstances have done a good job in, in creating holes in the boats. The circumstances have thrown labels at us, and a lot of us have accepted the labels. That we are dysfunctional because we came out of a dysfunctional background. We've accepted the labels that come with rejection. The labels that tell us that we're, we don't amount to much. The labels that tell us that we're a failure. Because we've had one experience where we failed or a string of failures. The labels that tell us that we're spoiled goods. We're damaged. We're defective. And unfortunately, the nature of the world is that people have a way of echoing what the circumstances are saying. And when we accept the labels, we are stigmatized. We carry shame in our hearts. We carry a mindset that tells us that we can't. And the enemy has a way of amplifying what the circumstances are saying and what others are saying. And so after a while, we're, all we are hearing are these words amplified over and over again that tell us that we don't matter, we can't make it, we're damaged, we're rejected goods, we're spoiled goods. We shouldn't even be thinking about things like that. 
He tries to get that deep into our psyche. That is who you are, he tells us. But then like we heard at the crossover service from that beautiful spoken word, your father says something else. And you have a choice as to who you believe. What the circumstances say, what others who say negative things say, what is amplified in your mind by the words that are spoken, or whether you choose to believe what your father says about you. You know, in 1 Peter, the second chapter and the ninth verse, and amongst the many things your father says about you, this is what I chose. He says, but you are a chosen generation, 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. The Passion Translation would put it like this. But you are God's chosen treasure, priests who are kings, a spiritual nation set apart as God's devoted ones. He called you out of darkness to experience his marvelous light, and now he claims you as his very own. He did this so that you would, not, so that you would broadcast his glorious wonders throughout the world. For at one time you were not God's people, but now you are. At one time, you, you knew nothing of God's mercy because you hadn't received it yet, but now you are drenched with it. And just want to tell you a few things out of that. Just want to start the process of, label, of, of encouraging you to label yourself correctly. The first thing those scriptures say, and this is just one scripture I've chosen Believe me, the Bible is full of God saying this to you. And why does he say it so much? Because he knows that the enemy has tried in a preemptive way to damage the boat. The first thing he says there is that you are my chosen treasure. What is he saying to you? You are precious and you are valuable irrespective of where you find yourself. Your circumstances can't define you. Irrespective of how you came into the world, your family doesn't define you. Your job doesn't define you or lack of a job doesn't define you. You are defined by what your creator, your father says about you. And he says about you that you are precious and you are valuable. In Zechariah, the second chapter and the eighth verse, he says you are the apple of his eye. That's a powerful statement from God. He act, the, the Bible actually says, for whoever touches you, touches the apple of his eye. The psalmist says in Psalms 139, verses 17 and 18, every single moment, and this is your psalm, you are thinking of me. How precious and wonderful to consider that you cherish me constantly in your every thought, O God. Your desires towards me are more than the grains of sand on every shore. When I awake each morning, you are still with me. 
Some of us need to put this on, on permanent play in our minds. That's why there's power in confessing and declaring and proclaiming the word of God. And in this instance, what God says about you. If you say it enough times, you will start to believe it. He reminds us, can a woman, he says in Isaiah 49 verses 15 to 16, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? It is an abnormality. There's something wrong when a woman does that. The natural process is for a woman to love her nursing child, have compassion on the child she has carried in her womb. But he says sometimes it can happen. There are certain circumstances where it does happen. We're shocked when we see those things happen, but it can happen. Surely, he says, they may forget. He says, but yet I will not forget you. Can someone say amen to that? And then he goes on to tell us, see, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. What was he trying to say to us? Not one second passes that I don't think about you. And so when those circumstances come to tell you lies, you need to speak back to those circumstances. You need to speak back to those voices and say, that's a lie. My father tells me how precious I am. I'm so valued that he inscribed my name on the palm of his hands and placed me continually before him. You use the truth to confront the lies. Number two, the second thing he says is he says that you are a royal priesthood. He says you are both a priest and a king. Two positions of honor. The inscription on my desk that says who I am in an office does not define me. The lettering on the door does not define me. And it might be a fancy job, but that doesn't even define me. It might be a job I hate, but that doesn't define me. Because at this desk, maybe even flipping buggers, whatever it is I'm doing, I am a priest and a king. Can someone say amen? And when you understand what he meant by priest, and the easiest way to understand it is to Go back and see what the Old Testament priests did. And understand that that was a type and a shadow of a New Testament reality. When you understand, and if you have time, if you read the book of Leviticus, the 8th, 9th, and 10th chapter, maybe that's some homework for you. And you see what the priests had to do. And the priests were chosen from a certain lineage. You couldn't become a priest if you were not an offspring of Aaron. So Aaron and his sons were the only ones in the nation who could be priests. It was a special position. And their job was to minister to God on their own behalf and on behalf of the nation. To light the candles, to, to oversee the sacrifices, 
to sprinkle the blood, to pour the oil, to kill the animals and sacrifice them, to, to oversee the worship of Jehovah in the way he was worshipped then. And if you read some of it, it's really something to see, pouring the blood, sprinkling the blood, getting the basins, lighting the candles, knowing exactly what to do in there to worship God. And when they got it right, when they lit the candle at the right time, when they didn't sprinkle more blood than they should, when they put the blood in the basin when they should, when they went up to the altar and sacrificed the sin offering, when they instructed the people to do a wave offering, when they did everything right, then God showed up. And when you look at, for example, verses 23 and 24, you get, you get a picture of how God showed up. It says, and Moses and Aaron Leviticus 9, verse 23 and 24. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. You know, we can take God for granted. You know, I mean, we can, we can do what we like. Um, you know, we can, you know, we can just lie on our beds and, and have some uh, poached eggs uh, next to us and a nice cappuccino. Um, and, you know, while the worship is going on, you sip a bit of the cappuccino, cut some egg, put it on some sourdough bread, stick it into your mouth, sing two songs to God, pop an, uh, a forkful into your mouth. We can do all that stuff. And, you know, grace, has a, grace, grace, because it's a time of grace, when God showed up in response to their worship, the fire fell, just try and imagine it, and consumed the offering. And when the people saw fire fall from nowhere, the glory of God filled the place. The people fell on the ground and shouted. And it wasn't a shout of adoration. Believe me, it was a shout of fear. And sometimes the priest would get it wrong. Sometimes they wouldn't do what they were supposed to do. And there was a lot for them to do. Sometimes they might forget. Or sometimes they might bring the wrong kind of fire. And that happened with two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They brought the wrong kind of fire. Guess what happened? The fire that should have fallen on the sacrifice fell on them and burnt them. So when we enjoy the grace we have in a New Testament dispensation, let's remember that it wasn't always so. So that we don't treat the things of God with levity. Of course, we're not saying that we become religious. But we're saying let's appreciate the grace that we live under. And when the fire devoured them, that's what the Bible says, and they died, Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Your two sons had just been killed by God. If you're any kind of father, you are angry, you are hurt, you are grieving, you're wondering, but we are serving you. Why would you do that? 
So Moses said to him, don't get into trouble yourself. He said, because God said that we should approach him in a holy way. That's why your sons are dead. Aaron said, I hold my peace. It helps us understand the beauty of us as New Testament priests. That we don't have to go through all those rituals. That we can just come boldly before his throne of grace. But it also sends a message to us. Don't treat him with levity. Don't abuse the grace. If he's the same yesterday, today and forever. He hasn't changed. It's just that this is a dispensation of grace. Can someone say amen to that? If we, if we get to work early because we're afraid of our bosses, let's get to church early because we have an appointment with God. Don't put him inadvertently below your boss. Your actions speak louder than words. Says we're priests and kings. And that's who you are. In a mess, suffering from rejection from a loved one, dealing with the pain of a broken relationship. He walked out on you and chose another person and your heart is messed up. The circumstances are telling you your second best. Trying to make sure that the fact that the marriage collapsed that people don't put a stigma on you because you failed an exam, that the circumstances don't tell you you're a failure, the business failed. It doesn't mean that you're a failure as a business. Trying to deal with life. And in the midst of that, God says you are a king. Your circumstances can't define who you are. He created you to be a king. And what do kings do? They rule and they reign. But then our kingship is a derived one, a delegated authority. That's what we have. That's why the phrase that we use to worship God, king of kings, makes sense. And from the beginning, that was always his intention. As he put forward his intention to create this masterpiece that you and I are. In Genesis, the first chapter, verses 26 to 28, he said, In Trinity, in cancel, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let's, let's make man like us. And then let them have dominion. Let them rule. Let them have dominion over my creation. But please, it is instructive that in those three scriptures that define our beginning... He never said, let man have dominion over another man or another woman. And so when you find someone trying to dominate another person, it is satanic and from the pits of hell. When a husband wants to dominate his wife, it cannot be from God. When a leader wants to dominate his people, a pastor wants to dominate his flock, the enemy has got in. 
But over his creation, he says, let them have dominion. Let them rule on my behalf. And he blesses them with the capacity within them to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. You and I are wired to have dominion on behalf of God over his creation, over the space that he puts us in. Psalms 115 verse 16 says, The heavens belong to God. They are His alone. But He has given us the earth and put us in charge. There are spaces that you're in charge of. There are places that you're in charge of. And your being in charge has nothing to do with an earthly function or an earthly title. You might have a CEO a boss who runs the entire organization. But if he is not a Christian, a child of God, he is not in charge except you allow him to be in charge. You might be way down the ladder, but please know who you are. When you walk in there, don't walk in like a pauper, like a slave. Walk in like a king, not with arrogance, but with understanding that this 26-story building is my space. I am in charge. What I decree here must happen because I'm not making my own decrees. I am making decrees that the king tells this little king to make. On your street, you have dominion on your street. You own the space, not for yourself, but for the kingdom. And a king rules by decrees. That's why I love the translation that calls the church God's legislative assembly. We make decrees. But it's not our own decrees. We're not running off decreeing all kinds of things. In the carnal expression of the church, you hear some of what they are decreeing and you know that an, an angel is not even going to lift a finger to bring it to pass because it is the decree from the heart of a selfish man who just wants to acquire and acquire for themselves. But when we find the decree in the book and then we echo the decree by faith, then the heavens, the angels, the hosts of heavens back up the decree, not because it is your decree, but because it is his decree and we are echoing what he has said. And then he says you're a holy nation, a spiritual nation. That's who you are. You were designed to live by his spirit. Yielded and submitted to his spirit. What's the difference between you and the others? It is the fact that his spirit is in you and you're yielding and submitting to his spirit. How does Paul put it in this most eloquent way? In Romans the 8th chapter verses 5 to 9. He says, those who are motivated by the flesh only pursue what benefits themselves. You know, there are only two ways to live. You either live by your flesh, which is your carnal nature, by your senses. You make decisions by your senses. Or you live by the Spirit of God, where you submit to the Spirit of God. doesn't mean that your intellect goes 
is suspended and goes on holiday. No, no, no. He blessed you with a fabulous intellect, with an amazing mind, with great intelligence. He created the brain, not some scientists. God created the brain. And we use such a tiny amount of this amazing machine that he put between our ears. But he never intended that we should run off on our own tangent with it. He intended that we should submit it to him and come to the level of intelligence that Adam showed so that when any animal was brought before him, whatever name Adam called it by his intelligence, God had put in him. But that intelligence was submitted to God. It could function at its optimum. He chose the right name for every animal. Not once did heaven say, no, that's not a giraffe. Absolutely not. That cannot be a tiger. And that shows you the extent that man can go to where man's, man trains his mind, trains his intellect, and then submits it to God. But those who live by the impulses of the Holy Spirit are motivated to pursue spiritual realities. That's how we're designed to live, by the impulses of the Holy Spirit. For the mindset of the flesh is death. A mind that is guided by our carnal nature. Our carnal nature is that part that is without the spirit, not submitted to the spirit, not yielded to the spirit. Invariably must lead to death. Wrong decisions, costly mistakes, hurting others, hurting ourselves. Moving from one accident to another. A calamity waiting to happen every other day. Wounding people by what we say and what we do. Carnage in our wake. And that's because that mindset is driven by the flesh. Goes on to say, but the mindset controlled by the spirit finds life and peace. Have you met some people who, where you are amazed as to how content they are? How they just seem to have an angle on life that the rest of us are trying to find. You see them in some tough situations, but the serenity, the grace with which they deal with those situations, the knowledge they seem to have, it seems like it's from another world. The way they respond to life's challenges, those are people who are submitted to the Spirit. They find life and peace. In fact, he says, the mindset focused on the flesh fights God's plan and refuses to submit to his direction because it cannot. The mindset that is driven by the carnal nature is going to fight God's plan because it doesn't even understand God's plan. It has its own agenda. It has its own plan. There's a collision, a head-on collision between that mindset and God's plan. It's going to fight God's plan. It's going to refuse, the Bible says, to submit to God's direction. Because it's a headstrong mindset. And literally saying to God, I'm not going that way. And how many of you know that God's ways are not truly our ways? The route you want to go to get to that destination, more likely than not, is going to be so different from the route that God wants to take you. 
and you've just got to learn by having a, a mindset that is controlled by the Spirit to just submit and yield to the Spirit. You can't make yourself better than God can make you. It's not possible. I mean, if it was in madness, why would we even think that we can control our own lives? You have no clue what is going to happen in the next hour. No clue. No matter how intelligent you are, you can't predict what is going to happen. Thank God for algorithms and all the many ways now that they try and predict things. God must be having a laugh, thinking if I want to turn this up, upside down, I'll do it and all your algorithms are going to fall flat. Didn't this pandemic show us how helpless we are? With all the, 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 the weapons and the, the arsenal of, 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 of all the great countries and armies and, and technology... The enemy came, we couldn't see it, we couldn't understand it. It brought every nation to its knees. He goes on to say, for no matter how hard they try, God finds no pleasure with those who are controlled by the flesh. Finds no pleasure whatsoever, no matter how hard they try. Because they are driven by their, their carnal nature. That's not who you are. But who are you? He says, but when the Spirit of Christ empowers your life, that's what, we, what should empower us, the Spirit of life. Not the Spirit in a bottle of Hennessy XO. Not uh, a can of uh, uh, Red Bull. And I don't necessarily have anything against that if you want to choose it, but that's not what powers you. What powers you is the Spirit of Christ. You wake up because of the Spirit of Christ. You have hope because of the Spirit of Christ. You can get through because of the Spirit of Christ. You can face the challenge because of the Spirit of Christ. You can stand against whatever is thrown at you because of the Spirit of Christ. The zest you have is because of the Spirit of Christ. The energy comes from the Spirit of Christ. Yes, thank God for eating right. You should do that. For going to the gym, you should do that. But believe me, that energy just powers your body at best. Your soul needs energy. Your spirit needs energy. That comes from the Spirit of Christ. We are powered by the Spirit of Christ. I wish somebody would make that into a slogan for an advert. Powered by the Spirit of Christ. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. Well, we were going to go on but conscious of time. So we'll pick it up uh, from there next week, Sunday. Um, and if, you, if there are any questions that you wanted to ask as to how this applies to your life, um, as I've spoken, we'll get a chance between 6 p.m. and 7 p.m. to do so. Hallelujah. Were you blessed by that? Are, are, you, are you challenged to launch out? Yeah. Amen. Amen. Don't, don't let anybody ever tell you that you're, you're a counterfeit. You are an original. You were skillfully and wonderfully made by God. Your, your boat is a first class boat. Amen. The, the, the enemy might have tried, um, but you know, you know, if you get a masterpiece, you can deface a masterpiece. 
But if you take it to certain experts, they can work back to the original masterpiece. They spend time taking out the things that have defaced it. God is the original creator of the masterpiece. And when things have gone wrong, we just take it back to him. And he works on it and restores the masterpiece to what it was originally. God is bringing restoration your way. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you and we bless you. Amen. And if there's anyone who is in this auditorium or you're, you're, you're watching online um, and you haven't brought yourself to the masterpiece, handed yourself over to him, you're trying to figure out how to live this life on your own. What a difficult journey you're going on without him. If you want to receive him into your life, and hand over the boat that your life is to him. Let him take control. Let him stir it. Let him direct it. Then this is a wonderful opportunity. What do you have to do? You just have to invite him in. It's as simple as that. Everything else has been done by his son for you. All that is left is for you to say, I give my life to you, Heavenly Father. And if you want to do so, um, why don't you just say this simple prayer with me and mean every word. You see, that's important, that you mean every word. Say after me, Heavenly Father, I thank you for today, for the word that you have brought to me. I want to give my life to you. To accept your son today as my Lord and Savior. Father, I give my life to you. Thank you for accepting me into your family. Thank you for starting today the process of restoration, fixing me for the work that you have for me. I give you all the praise, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As simple as that. You've given your life to him, accepted his son as Lord and Savior. Your journey to restoration starts. And I'm excited for you. Welcome to God's family. Welcome to the journey that, that will take you to be, to place of restoration. You're an original masterpiece. And God has a plan for your life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 